Well, the reading tonight is taken from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. God's word says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the depression in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that we have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome tonight as our speaker, the Reverend Melvin Tinker, who is the vicar of St. John Newland in Hull. The title for his talk tonight is secularization, myth or menace? Well, it is a, a great pleasure to be with you tonight. Thank you for your kind invitation. My wife, Heather, and I have been supporters of the Christian Institute uh, from the very beginning. And uh, I think if we're going to uh, take a stand against secularization and under God see any change, then we do need organizations like the Christian Institute. But I'll be mentioning that a little bit later on. Now, a number of years ago, the Christian social critic Os Guinness commented, Christians are always more culturally short-sighted than they realize. They're often unable to tell, for instance, where their Christian principles leave off and their cultural perspectives begin. What many of them fail to ask themselves is, where are we coming from and what is our own context? 
Now, those are some of the questions I want us to think about tonight in relation to this subject of secularization. Now, many Christians, we bemoan the fact that we live in what is often referred to today as a secular society, and that this somehow constitutes a threat to the church, as well as endangering the spiritual and moral health of society as a whole. But apart from some vague notion that this is not a good thing, what do we actually mean by that term? Well, first of all, it's important to note a distinction between secularism and secularization. Secularism is a philosophy, whereas secularization is a process. In terms of the origin of the word etymologically, both are derived from the Latin word seculum, which means the present age. So uh, the scholar Eric Maskell defined the secular as that whole body of thought and activity which is concerned with man's life in what is sometimes called this world. Thus there is excluded from the sphere of the secular any concern which man may have with a possible future life after death and any concern which he may have even during this life with an order of reality, if such there be, which transcends the experience of the senses. In other words, what you can see, what you can hear, what you can touch is all there is. That's the secular. There's no eternity, there's no spiritual dimension. But he goes on to add, of course, a man may believe in the reality and importance of the secular without being a secularist. Now this means that many of our contemporaries, your neighbors, are functional secularists. They may say they have a spirituality, but the way they operate on a day-to-day -day basis is this world is, if not the only thing that exists, the most important thing that exists. And I think the same could be said of some Christians. However, the full-blown secularist philosophy as represented by, say, the Secularist Society of Great Britain tends to be openly aggressive and therefore easily recognizable by Christians and so unlikely to deceive us. But that cannot be said of secularization. Now this is an all-pervading process and it's been defined by the sociologist Peter Berger as the process by which sectors of society and culture are removed from the domination of religious institutions and symbols. In other words, this is a movement of change which takes place through the structures of society and especially the spheres of science, technology, bureaucracy, and the media. And this results that in religious ideas becoming less and less meaningful, and religious institutions like the church becoming more and more marginal. Or to quote Don Carson, in more popular parlance, all three words, secular, secularization, and secularism, have to do with the squeezing of the religious to the periphery of life. More precisely, secularization is the process that progressively removes religion from the public arena and reduces it to the private realm. Secularism is the stance that endorses and promotes such a process. And that's it in a nutshell. 
Now, of course, there is a subjective intellectual side to secularization. It's sometimes called the modern mentality. And this has been described as man turning his attention away from worlds beyond and towards this world and this time, the secularum. Now, since secularization is a gradual process, its influence is often subtle. And it's this which captures Christians unawares. And Christians and churches are not immune from this process as we're going to see. But the net effect of secularization, this squeezing of religion to the peripheries of society out of the public sphere, is actually to instill within the church a form of worldliness. Now the prophets of secularization, which saw themselves as ushering in the enlightened secular age, have been around a long time. In France, Auguste Comte declared that as a result of modernization, human society was outgrowing the theological stage of social evolution, which he called the fictitious age. And it was going into a truly scientific one. In 1968, Peter Berger announced that by the 21st century, religious believers are likely to be found only in small sects, huddled together to resist a worldwide secular culture. That was his prediction then. Now this presupposes what has come to be known as the secularization thesis. Now this is the view that with the rise of modernity, which embraces industrialization, urbanization, and rationalization, there will be invariably a corresponding declining religion, resulting not only in the separation of church and state and the reduction of the church's social power in society as a whole, but the decline in personal piety itself. In other words, what they're saying is with the development of science, with the development of technology and modern beliefs, religion, whichever religion you're talking about, will wither on the vine. That is the secularization thesis. The process, secularization, relates to the philosophy, secularism, by providing the ideal environment in which the latter can flourish almost unchallenged. The resulting effect is that secularization compounds secularism and it restricts religion. This is uh, the way uh, Os Guinness warns. He says, secularization is the acid rain of the spirit, the atmospheric cancer of the mind and the imagination, vented into the air not only by industrial chimneys but by computer terminals, marketing technique and managerial insights. It is washed down in the rain, shower by shower, the deadliest destroyer of religious life the world has ever seen. And listening to that, you're reminded of um, a question once asked of Malcolm Muggeridge. How do you boil a frog? I mean, that's what we all want to know. How do you boil a frog? And the answer, of course, is that you don't boil the frog by dropping it into a pan of hot water, otherwise it just leaps out. Rather, the way to boil a frog is to place it in a pan of cool water and then gradually raise the temperature. And that way, the frog's going to die 
without even being aware of what was happening. Now the secularization process is like that, it's gradual, it's insipid. Now David Wells draws upon this illustration and he goes so far as to claim, in the same way the church often seems to be blithely unaware of the peril that now surrounds it. So let's think a bit more about the process. What drives it? How does it work? What is the acid rain effect which Guinness talks about? Well, there are two underlying dynamics of the secularization process. The first dynamic is what Max Weber calls rationalization. Now, this refers to religious ideas becoming less and less meaningful and religious traditions becoming more and more marginal as they are replaced by other ways of thinking, other traditions. So with the advance of modernity, less space is reserved for God, is squeezed out. So in practical terms, this means that if you are ill, you call a physician, not a priest. If you want good crops, you get a better fertilizer rather than offering sacrifices to appease an angry deity, you see? Now this is the hallmark of modernity, this bottom-up causation of we can do it ourselves. And that replaces the top-down causation of God and the supernatural. Here's Guinness again. He says, here nothing is left to chance. By the same token, nothing is left to human spontaneity or divine intervention. This is typical of the acid rain effect the modern movement towards extensive rationalization, far from being an incidental consequence of modernization, this is one of its essential characteristics. As modernization drives forward, more and more what was formerly left to God or human initiative or the process of nature is classified and calculated and controlled for the use of human reason. This is not a matter of philosophical rationalism, but functional rationality. This is the way we operate. Now this in turn leads to what Max Weber calls disenchantment. Uh, this would have been something C.S. Lewis attacked. The idea that the magic or the mystery of life is not just removed, but unwanted. We don't want any mystery. We don't want anything spooky. We simply want to apply our reason, we want to apply our technology with the consequences that matters of faith are deemed irrelevant. Who needs God? Who needs religion? And this modernist outlook is summed up by the social scientist Philip Reif. What characterizes modernity, I think, is just this idea, this is very important, that men need not submit to any power higher or lower other than their own. In other words, man is king, man is God. Now think for a moment of the effect this has in terms of the church's task of commending the Christian faith. Now here we're dealing with what Peter Berger calls plausibility structures. That is those background assumptions and beliefs and ways of thinking and acting which are simply taken as given. Everybody believes this, don't they? Now, if this rationalization process has made inroads, then the assumptions and beliefs of the church will simply not be seen by many people as they're rendered more or less invisible, off the conceptual radar. 
So it's not that Christianity is considered to be untrue. Rather, it is considered to be meaningless. It's gobbledygook. It's like a foreign language. Now, when the church is strong in terms of its influence in society, then it will at least seem to be true and relevant. But conversely, when it is weak, as it is today, it will appear to be untrue and irrelevant. Now, the role of background beliefs in society is helpfully set out by Barry Barnes. This is what he says. For most people, whatever their way of life, the beliefs they accept and utilize are held unselfconsciously and are rarely reflected upon. Moreover, when reflection does occur, it tends to depict those beliefs as natural representations of how things are. Critical, analytical examination of beliefs, their origin, functions, and claim to validity is the province of specialized academic roles in modern societies. And it's a phenomenon of little general significance. The Western layman lives in a taken-for-granted world, solid, objective, intelligible. On the whole, he thinks with his beliefs, but does not think about them. Now, of course, it follows that if those beliefs are secular, the only thing that exists is what you can see, hear, touch, then the Christian faith is going to seem implausible. It's going to be la-la land. So it's not simply a matter now of arguing for the cogency or the truth of the Christian faith. Many think there's nothing to argue about. In a postmodern setting, people are not particularly interested in the credibility of Christianity, but its plausibility. And to be frank, in the current social climate, it doesn't seem all that plausible. So that's the effect of rationalization. Now, the second dynamic is differentiation. And the idea here is that the dominance of religion in society collapses. And society is separated out or differentiated into different spheres. So you've got the state, and you've got the economy, you've got media, and you've got education. And the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Now, it's popularly viewed that the medieval church had an ideological monopoly and exercise significant institutional control over the state, the economy, and education. So ideological uniformity has now been replaced by variety, pluralism. And this institutional cohesion has given way to this differentiation. You've got these different spheres all over the place. Jose Casanova describes it that the, the modern era has witnessed, quote, the transformation of the church from a state-orientated to a society-orientated institution. Churches cease being or aspiring to be state-compulsory institutions and become free religious institutions of civil society. Now, you want to see the effect of this, you just have to look at the architecture dominating many Western cities. Here's a quote. Have you ever seen the silhouette of the London skyline in the 18th century? Compare it with the same skyline today. What is dramatic about the earlier skylines is the dominance of church architecture 
abbeys and cathedrals tower above other buildings, representing the social power of the church. While spires and steeples symbolizing the human spirit thrust upward to the world beyond. Today, by contrast, the churches are dwarfed by skyscraping office blocks and crouch down somewhere between the banks and the insurance buildings, cramped and overshadowed by a host of competing institutions. Here is a vivid picture of the effect of the first trend. The movement in modernization towards explosive diversification. Specialized, separate areas are thrown up, each with its own premises, its own priorities and procedures. In a word, its own autonomy. We live in a, a fragmented society. Now, it's often claimed that one of the byproducts of secularization, this thrusting of religion to the margins of society out of the public sphere, is privatization. Nothing to do with labor or Tories or anything like that. This, as the name suggests, is, is simply restricting religion to the private domain. Now, to ascertain whether or not this is the case, I think we've got to be a bit clearer about what we understand by the private sphere. Now, as we've seen in the matter of differentiation, it is true that in the West, religious institutions, including the Church of England, no longer have the social clout they once had. But having said that, we still do have an established church. We still do have bishops sitting in the House of Lords. And to be sure, some Christians react to secular pressure by withdrawing into a sort of holy huddle. You adopt a siege mentality and a new pietism and you don't engage with culture and society. What is more, if it is the case, as Carson has argued, that the result of secularization is that the religious side does not matter very much anymore in the public square and therefore in the direction of the nation, in its public pulse. If it is being claimed that Christianity has relinquished the public square altogether and has become something which is purely personal, being God, then the situation on the ground would suggest otherwise. You've only got to look at organizations like CARE, Christian Institute, or the effect of local churches up and down our country, as you see in the book uh, written by Sir Fred Catherwood called It Can Be Done. And that shows that churches, evangelical churches, are engaging at a local level. And that shows no signs of abating. So let's think a bit more now about secularization, secularism, and the church. It's been argued that by virtue of being a process, secularization can have a far more insidious influence on society than secularism as a philosophy. Now, this is very important when it comes to assessing the secularization of the church or the worldliness of the church. If secularization is a means of making people more worldly, concerned just with the here and now, how do Christians respond? Well, one stance which can be taken is what Peter Berger designates as cognitive and cultural resistance. That's the important word, resistance. Now, this tends to be associated with more conservative elements of the church, for example, fundamentalism. Now, on the face of it, there appears to be a retreat from the world and a formation of a little subculture. 
And sometimes, of course, whole alternative communities are formed. For example, the Amish community in the United States. How successful this approach is is open to question because there are signs that conservative churches have engaged in a cognitive and cultural surrender. That is, there's a worldliness going on within those churches which are, are barely concealed with a Christian guise. And that, I think, is because the effects of secularization and worldliness are so pervasive. Take the case of the church growth movement. It's been argued that certain expressions of this movement exhibit a new form of worldliness, which results from being squeezed into a practical secular mold by secularization. Now here you've got the churchy or the ecclesiastical manifestation of this bottom-up causation of human designs and products spoken by Guinness. In other words, we can do it. If God wants to help us, that's fine, but we can do it. Now here, the emphasis is on the quantifiable, what you can measure. The emphasis is on the doable, what can be achieved. And of course, those two things are key features of secularization in the church. Now, in the certain aspects of the church growth movement, you've got both of these in bucket loads, especially in the United States. Uh, having encountered this, a, a visiting Japanese businessman commented to an Australian. He said, whenever I meet a Buddhist leader, I meet a holy man. Whenever I meet a Christian leader, I meet a manager. That is striking. Now, bearing in mind Reef's chief characteristic of modernity, man not wanting to submit to any power higher or lower than his own, this following citation from a church growth manual voices the modern mentality only too well. This, and I quote, the church is a business. Marketing is essential for a business to operate successfully. The Bible is one of the world's greatest marketing texts. However, the point is indisputable. The Bible does not warn against the evils of marketing, so it behoves us not to spend time bickering about techniques and processes. Think of your church not as a religious meeting place, but as a service agency an entity that exists to satisfy people's needs. The marketing plan is the Bible of the marketing game. Everything that happens in the life of the product occurs because the plan wills it. It is critical that we keep in mind the fundamental principle of Christian communication. The audience, not the message, is sovereign. That's pure secularism. In the summer, I was over in, uh, in the United States in uh, Houston. And Houston, I'm not going to mention the name of the church, you probably know it anyway, it's the largest church in the United States, 40,000 people. Can you imagine 40,000 people? But you listen to the message being preached there week in, week out. It has nothing to do with Christianity. It's the American dream served up in Christian guise. 40,000 people come, they're there with the Bibles. They don't bother opening the Bibles because the Bible's not preached but 40,000 people. That's worldliness, you see. Now, one's reminded of the story concerning Harry Cohn's funeral. Now, Harry Cohn uh, was the head of Columbia Pictures. He died in 1958, and a huge crowd showed up at his funeral service. 
Now, this was mystifying to most of the people because although he was a genius, Cohn was hugely unpopular. He was a tyrant, he was probably one of the most hated producers in Hollywood. And when a reporter spoke to the comedian Red Skelton about how surprised he was that such a large number of people turned up to Cohn's funeral, Skelton retorted, it just goes to show you, if you give people what they want, they'll show up. <laughs> now the result, as David Wells argues, is that truth shrinks and the church eventually disappears. Quote, there is a yearning in the evangelical world today. We encounter it everywhere. It is a yearning for what is real. Sale pitches, marketed faith, the gospel is commodity, people as customers, God is just a prop to my inner life, the glitz and the sizzle. Disneyland on the loose in our churches. All of it skin deep and often downright wrong. It is not making serious disciples. It cannot make serious disciples. It brims with success, but it is empty, shallow, and indeed unpardonable. So the irony, you see, is that the soul-destroying effect which secularization has on society is being introduced into the church. Not by the back door, but by the front door. Now this brings us to the second way the church has reacted to secularization. Cognitive and cultural adaptation, which when pushed to the extreme results in the Christian thought assimilating the world's assumptions. Now sometimes this orientation begins with laudable motives, you know, being all things to all men in order to save some. But the trajectory can result in simply becoming all things to all men. And then you become like all men. So here, flexibility for the sake of Christ becomes faithlessness to Christ by denying defining Christian beliefs. Now, such an abandonment of traditional Christian faith under the weight of modernization is well captured by that celebrated statement of the liberal German theologian Rudolf Bultmann. It is impossible to use electric light and the wireless uh, radio, for those who are still too young, <laughs> and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries, and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of demons and spirits. Now this secularization of religion uh, began to gather momentum in the 1960s with Bishop John Robinson's Honest to God, 1963, Paul Van Buren's Secular Meaning of the Gospel, 1963, Harvey Cox's The Secular City, 1965, and Ronald Gregor Smith's Secular Christianity, 1966. And this paralleled what was called the Death of God movement. Now it's here, with liberalism, that the corrosive effects of secularization is most potent. Because as Gresham Machen showed back in the 1920s, liberalism is another religion entirely. It is not merely using a phrase of Karl Barth to describe biblical interpretation, saying the same thing in other words. It is saying something different using the same words. Now here, the secularizing of the church is almost complete, as theology, that is, thoughts about God, is reduced to anthropology, thoughts about man, or again to use a phrase of Karl Barth, talking about man in a loud voice. That's what liberal theology is about. 
Now, the two sociologists, Stark and Fink, have drawn attention to the self-destructive nature of theological liberalism in relation to the work of Don Cupid. Remember Cupid? This is what they say. It, by the way, he basically is an atheist, okay? <laughs> but at the time, he was drawing money from the Church of England. Uh, and this is what they say. Why should religion without God have a future? Cupid's prescription strikes us as rather like expecting people who continue to buy soccer tickets and gather in the stands to watch players who, for lack of a ball, just stand around. If there are no supernatural beings, then there are no miracles, there is no salvation, prayer is pointless. The commandments are but ancient wisdom, and death is the end. In which case, the rational person would have nothing to do with church. Or more accurately, a rational person would have nothing to do with a church like that. And that's what's happened, because the people leave the liberal churches. Why bother turning up? I'd rather go to the cinema on a Sunday. Now let's just go back to this secularization thesis. As industrialization goes on and science develops, then religion goes down. Now in recent years, sociologists have subjected the secularization thesis to a sustained critique. And especially this idea that modernization invariably leads to religious decline in belief as well as influence. Now, in Europe, the picture is rather mixed. I'll just give you some figures. This is 1990. Things haven't changed massively. Probably gone down a bit. But in 1990, for example, 10% of the French attended church compared to 40% of the Italians and 81% of the Irish. Now, it's the United States, which is probably the most modernized country in the world, which still has an attendance of around 40% on a regular basis. And it's that which provides the greatest stumbling block to this thesis. The secularization thesis has largely exercised an appeal because it assumes that once a golden religious age from which this decline has taken place with the rise of industrialization. Now this view that there was a religious golden age has been challenged. Stark and Fink used the year 1800 as a benchmark when church membership was higher in Britain than it is now. In 1800, 12% of the population belonged to a specific congregation. That rose to 17% in 1850, and then stabilized. The same percentage was founded around 1900. Similarly, Michael Watts writes, both the early Victorians and many later historians assume that there was a mythical golden age in the past when everyone went to church of his or her own free will. But there is little evidence that this golden age ever existed. End of quote. The misleading and damaging effects of having a false baseline from which to view religious decline is well captured by Os Guinness. He says a real present, which is highly secular, can falsely be contrasted with an imaginary past, which is highly religious. Quite ludicrous and unhistorical, but the stuff of which invaluable myths are made. Take a period like the 17th century in England, the golden age of Puritanism. Granted, the Puritan Revolution reached its zenith then, but at the same time, the sales of almanacs exceeded those of the Bible, and for all the intense spiritual devotion and theological discussion of the period, superstition, astrology, and witchcraft were rife. It was hardly a consistent spiritual age, let alone a golden one. 
Yet, like earlier periods, such as the 12th and 15th centuries, it is convenient to use in suggesting that prior to secularization, all was well in the world of faith. And uh, Guinness continues. Dramatize secularization through distorting history, and you achieve two things at once. You confirm the skepticism of the disbeliever and reinforce the discouragement of the believer. Alexander Murray asks, where did the notion of an age of faith come from? Having shown from original sources the near unanimous irreligion in medieval times, he concludes, the scientific enlightenment was tempted to conceive faith not as a virtue, but as an original sin, from which the Messiah of knowledge came to rescue it. It follows from that view that in the olden days, men must have believed all the church told them. So there was no great golden age. Now the second reason why this thesis is questioned is because subjective religious belief, not necessarily Christian belief, but religious belief, remains high. Now if this thesis were correct, those rates would be expected to be low. So Grace Davy concludes, what is clear is that most surveys of religious belief in Northern Europe demonstrate continuing high levels of belief in God and some of the more general tenets of the Christian faith, but rather low levels of church attendance. And furthermore, if the secularization thesis holds true, then if all the sectors of society where one would expect the effects of secularization to show up the most would be amongst scientists. They're the model secular people, in theory. Now, Professor Richard Dawkins and Professor Sam Harris could only wish it were so. In 1914, the American psychologist James Luber sent questionnaires to a random sample of people listed in American Men of Science. He hoped to show that scientific thinking people would not be very religious and that in due course society as a whole would grow out of such superstitious beliefs, the fictitious age I mentioned earlier on by Comte. So each was asked to select one of the following statements. One, I believe in a God to whom one may pray in the expectation of receiving an answer. Two, I do not believe in God as defined above. Three, I have no definite belief regarding this question. Now I suggest to you those questions are so stringent today it, they would exclude a number of modern clergy. Okay? Now to his dismay, Luber found that 41.8% of these prominent scientists went for option one. 41.5%, many of whom Luba acknowledged did believe in a supreme being, opted for two. 16.7% took the third vague alternative. Now the exact same study was repeated in 1996 by Larson and Witham, and the results were unchanged. Now that means over an 82-year period which has seen accelerated modernization of society, there'd be no decline even amongst the most liberal of beliefs, amongst scientists. So put simply, there does not appear to be a simple cause and effect relationship between modernization and secularization. 
or a reciprocal relationship between secularization and religious beliefs. It doesn't exist. It's a myth. Now, the proponents of the inevitability of secularization process are now more muted than they once were. And some have actually recanted altogether, and they've just ditched it. In an interview in 1997, Peter Berger admitted, I think what most other sociologists of religion wrote in the 1960s about secularization was a mistake. Our underlying argument was that secularization and modernity go hand in hand. With more modernization comes more secularization. It wasn't a crazy theory. There was some evidence for it. But I think it's basically wrong. Most of the world today is certainly not secular. It's very religious. In fact, the situation is a little more complex, I, I want to suggest. I think it would be unfortunate if the impression given so far were to be that because the more robust version of secularization thesis is tottering, even though there are a few folk who still hold to it, like uh, Professor Steve Bruce, this means that there has not been significant secularization in both the United States and in Europe. There has been. But again, it's a bit more messy. More recently, Peter Berger announced, I would say that America is less religious than it seems because it has a cultural elite which is heavily secularized, which, if you will, is Europeanized. The cultural elite is the minority of the population, but it has great influence through the media, the education system, and even the law to some extent. Europe is less secular than it seems because of the kind of thing Davy has been writing about, believing without belonging. Berger further observes, in Central and Western Europe, no question, the churches are in a bad shape by any indicator of either behavior or expressed belief, and also institutionally in terms of recruitment of clergy, the financial situation, and public influence, certainly very much compared to the United States. But a lot takes place outside the churches, and that has to be taken into account. Now, whilst the secularization thesis in its original, more strident form no longer holds sway as it once did, there is no denying the effects of secularization on Western society at large, and the Western church in particular. However, it's important not to give too much credit to secularism because there are other factors at work. And these other factors may have contributed to lower church attendance. And some of this, I'm going to suggest, may be the result of the success of evangelicalism. What do I mean? I'll give you an example. Falling baptism rates in the Church of England. They may not simply be the result of less parents becoming Christians or being interested. They could be the result, or at least part of it being the result, of ministers being more rigorous in standards being applied for eligibility for baptism. In other words, there's more discipline. I think that's a good thing. Dr. Tim Larson makes a similar point when he writes, in 19th century England, the functions of the religious establishment were reduced in large measure because evangelical nonconformists campaigned for this to happen. 
a campaign that was informed by a free church ecclesiology. This ecclesiology called for the church to be a gathered company of disciplined followers of Jesus Christ that renounced any use of the power of the state to attempt to advance the gospel on the grounds that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, one could argue one of the processes that is labeled secularization happened because people of faith tenaciously demanded it for theological reasons. In other words, those of you here tonight who are from the free church background, you've held this along. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It could be a good thing, according to Larson. And I'll elaborate on that in a second. Now, more recently, Hugh McLeod has argued that it is Christendom that has been in decline for at least two centuries. And it was in the early 1960s that that crumbling became more marked. Now, according to McLeod, it may not be putting it too strongly to suggest that the period may eventually be regarded as seeing, quote, a rupture as profound as that brought about by the Reformation. So he argues that there was not so much an intellectual defeat of Christianity, as the secularists would like us to believe, but with coercion being used less and less, people could simply choose the faith. So think, for example, of the 19th century farm workers in Britain who had to attend church because it was demanded of them by the landowners. That's going to bump up your statistics. Or the Act of 1559, which imposed a fine of 12 pence for every absence from church. That's going to get the people in. Or the Act of Retaining the Queen's Subjects in their due obedience of 1593 imposed a prison sentence for failing to attend church for a month and exile or death for failing to confirm within three months. That's going to affect church attendance. So the decline of Christendom meant that a lot of people who used to be nominal Christians through legal or social pressures broke away from the church and its teachings. Or to use uh, Tim Keller's phrase, we now have less of the mushy middle. We certainly do in Hull. <laughs> so instead, people are more polarized. So choosing a religious or a secular way of life rather than drifting by default into a nominal Christian blah zone. Now, McLeod argues that in the 1960s, affluence increased. And rather than actively rejecting religion, people simply began to neglect it. Affluence also meant that free time options became more diverse and diverting. Church attendance gradually lost out to more entertaining pursuits. Different attitude to parenting also had an effect, he argues. Generations of parents had insisted that their children were going to Sunday school, whether they wanted to or not. Perhaps some of you had to do that. But the 1960s broke that cycle. By and large, these views did not stop going because they had formulated new views on the question of God and the problem of evil. They simply wanted to stay out late on a Saturday night and lie in on a Sunday morning. And linked to this was the increased number of women entering into the workforce. Prior to the 1960s, men tended to leave the spiritual formation of the children to the women. With less time available, something had to give. And one such thing was teaching children to pray. Now, McLeod argues that Christendom declined in part because the young were not being socialized into Christianity. 
And this is illustrated by uh, an amusing incident when a journalist asked David Beckham if he was planning to have his son christened, and he replied that he liked the idea, but he didn't know into which religion. <laughs> oh, well, Victoria, this is good. I know, anyway. Uh, but, but, you know, I mean, that, that says it all, really. Now, another important point uh, McLeod makes is that we need to keep control groups in view, lest we wrongly infer from declining church attendance an informed critique of religion. So Marxist and socialist organization lost a greater percentage of their members than the churches did in the 1960s, despite Marxism being intellectually fashionable in both the universities and the liberation movements which were energizing young people in those days. So what he's saying is, look, there's been a decline of organizational commitments generally. Okay? Look at the scout movement today. It is so difficult getting leaders, getting volunteers for anything. Get religion, because apathy rules. Similarly with political parties. Now, relative to this, McLeod insists, the churches have done fairly well. Quote, Yet in the pluralist and relatively secular societies of the later 20th century, the Christian churches continue to have an important role. At a time when many other voluntary organizations had also suffered serious decline, they remained the largest in numbers of active members and the widest ranging in social influence. Now the point being made is that secularism is not the only force at work. Nonetheless, when the result of whatever factors are in operation and church attendance does decline, it does at least create the impression, especially when aided and abetted by the chattering classes and the media, that secularism is a viable option and is the main, the sole explanation for reduced religious commitment. So there may be other factors at work, good factors, but the end result is lesser numbers. And these guys say, ah, yeah, that's secularization. Conclusion, this is the important bit. If secularization is another example of the world trying to squeeze the Christian mind into its mold, Romans 12:1, how might this be overcome and in some measure reversed? Well, there's employment to what has been described as resistance thinking, a term adopted from uh, an essay by C.S. Lewis on Christian apologetics who wrote in 1945. This is the way someone has described this, this uh, resistance thinking. It's a way of thinking that balances the pursuit of relevance on the one hand with a tenacious awareness of those elements of the Christian message that don't fit in with the contemporary age on the other. Emphasize only the natural fit between the gospel and the spirit of the age, and we will have an easy, comfortable gospel that is closer to our age than to the gospel. All answers to human aspirations, for example, and no mention of self-denial and sacrifice. But emphasize the difficult, the obscure, and even the repellent themes of the gospel, certain that they too are relevant, even though we don't know how, and we will remain true to the full gospel. And surprisingly, we will be relevant not only to our own generation, but also to the next, and the next, and the next. Resistance thinking then 
is the way of relevance with faithfulness. Similarly, Harry Blamires writes, Christians have always accepted that their spiritual and moral position vis-a-vis the unbelieving world does not in essentials change. Our reliance upon the Bible as the word of God presupposes that advice given in one age is valid for another. The pattern of Christian preaching established over the centuries is based on the assumption that the Christian message is unalterable in its essentials. So both the feasibility and desirability from a biblical viewpoint of going against the flow is borne out by recent studies. A number of years ago, Dean Kelly showed that by and large, conservative churches grow and liberal churches decline. Because liberal churches offer commodities such as, quote, fellowship, entertainment, and knowledge, which are also provided by secular institutions. And actually, the secular institutions do a better job of it. While conservative churches offer, quote, the one incentive which is unique to churches, salvation, the promise of supernatural life after death. Now, this does not mean that simply by remaining sound, in terms of our theological orthodoxy, without being culturally engaging with the gospel, growth is going to follow. It doesn't work like that. But it does underscore the importance of maintaining Christian distinctives and belief and behavior as God's chosen people living as strangers in the world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Now, some see this dismantling of Christendom as a fresh opportunity for the church to be the church and calls Christians to embrace the challenge. For example, Stanley Howass urges Christians just to get on with living the gospel and let the chips fall where they may be. The world doesn't like it. Tough. This is what we believe. From an earlier century, Soren Kierkegaard, railing against the moribund Danish state church, sees as the distinguishing features of a church obtaining Christ's favor as being one of, quote, cross and agony and suffering, crucifying the flesh, suffering for the doctrine, being sacrificed. The call for the church in the secularized West to be prepared to suffer rounds off Don Carson's treatment in his book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, and the corrosive effect of secularization producing a more intolerant society. And this is what he exhorts right at the end. He says, delight in God, trust in him. God remains sovereign, wise and good. Our ultimate confidence is not in any government or party still less our ability to mold the culture in which we live. So friends, I just want to say, look, our calling is really the same as the calling of any Christian living in this seculum, with its idolatries and various expressions of rebellion against its creator. We remain faithful and true. The promise of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus is unequivocal and firm. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 2, 26. Well, I grew up in the 1960s, Melvin. You said the death of guild movement sort of started in 1963. I can remember people were God-fearers. Actually, it was a lot easier to live then. You, you didn't have to lock your bike up, and you could leave your house unlocked. That's right. And... Uh, there was a, though that people didn't go to church, mm. they sure sent their children to church. 
When I was at university, I remember talking to people of my own age and asking, did your parents get you to pray? And yeah. most of them said they did. Yeah. So it was a nicer, in some ways, we, we've got great, you know, we live longer now and there's probably better health service and some things are better, but actually a lot of things were better in, in that, that time where you had people who were, had a fear of God, even though they might not have gone to church. Mm. How do you think that relates to secularization? I suppose they, they weren't secularized. No, um, this is McLeod's point, isn't it? That there are other factors at work. Um, I mean, I was brought up in the, in the 1960s as well, and I remember things like that. But of course, when you were a kid, you just see nice things. But talking to my parents, I, I'm from a non-Christian background, so my parents weren't Christians, and my grandparents, my granddad was a communist and influenced me in that way. Uh, but what you're saying is, is absolutely true. There were, there were basic, this is to do with the plausibility structures. There were certain background beliefs and assumptions that even people who were not Christians held, and which my parents held, so they did believe there was a God. Uh, they did believe there was right and wrong, and certain things were clearly right and wrong. Even if they, they were inconsistent themselves, it was there. Um, I went to a, a primary school sec, uh, and then secondary school. It was a comprehensive school. That's where I learned to pray um, because they said grace. We never said that at home, but that's where we said grace before uh, school lunch and things like that. We had assemblies. Uh, and we sang hymns. This was one of the very first comprehensive schools. So you had all those sort of basic beliefs there that there was truth, there's right and wrong. And so when, for instance, Lewis was uh, doing his stuff for mere Christianity, which came out of mere Christianity, um, he was speaking into that kind of situation where a lot of things could be assumed. We've moved on because there's been a dismantling of those background beliefs and a replacing them of other beliefs. This has come, of course, to a I don't know, sort of apex, I guess, with a political correctness movement, where people are even afraid to not even say certain things because you can't say that, can you now, but even think certain things. Now, if that's the case, then you've got a, a, a form of oppression. You cannot engage in, in free thought, let alone uh, free discussion. And as a result, those who wish to push a particular agenda <laughs> There's no opposition because there's no opposition to be allowed there. And of course, that's from the outside, but also from the inside. If you have your church leaders, as you saw there with the death of Govan movement and, um, and earlier on with, uh, with John Robinson, uh, actually dismantling those beliefs within the church institution, you eventually get to the situation where there's not much difference between the inside and the outside. And that's why I said you've got a form of worldliness. The cultural landscape and the mental landscape which we inhabit today is totally radically different to the one I was brought up. And we tend to think of the 60s from 1960 to 1970. I mean, that figure's 1969. That's a decade. But sociologically speaking, in terms of values and thoughts, um, the, many sociologists go from 1957 to 1974 as the 60s. And so things would change gradually. And then you got marked shift over in the 1970s, which is when I was at university. So you're right, I mean, it's a big change. So, um, but what I'm saying is that it's not just secularization. Uh, other factors have been at work, but the end result is still the same, in that religious institutions and religious thoughts no longer have a central place in the public sphere. You start talking God, it's like, <gasps> you know, on, on the media or whatever, you know, you, you're, again, it's the assumption, well, you're, you're strange, you're weird. 
and you're not allowed to... We don't do God in, in, in politics. In America, it's a different ballgame. As Berger says, you, it's a bit more complicated because you've still got a secularization there due to the cultural elite. And whether that's been matched by others engaging with them, and whether, in fact, you've simply been surrendered to at the grassroots level by some, in that, for all we trust in God, or in God we trust, the lifestyle is, is actually showing something different. Thank you for tonight's talk. You wanted to draw the distinction between the secularizing that is happening uh, with the cultural elites and, mm -hmm. and that being quite different from what may be happening at grassroots level with, with people. Thank you for that. Um, a judge recently said a few uh, weeks ago at a conference that our, the British courts are now secular courts. He said, and he, he was quite mm. happy to say that quite boldly, even though there's been no change to our constitutional arrangements, no bill passed, um, no, no change in the rules uh, of how the courts operate. But he was able to say that because he just feels that culturally in the background now, we don't make rulings on the basis of sort of absolute morality. Sure. Our courts are now secular. So whilst it, it, it may be so that it's our elites that have become secularized in their thinking. That has big implications for us when we go to court mm. to ask the court to defend our religious freedoms mm. because they just see it in a completely different way to the way we do. So although it may be the elites that have become secularized, um, so I suppose I'm asking, is it myth or menace? Uh, it could, it's it both. could be both. It really is both. What is a myth is the secularization thesis. Exploded. Secularization is still a menace in the way I've described it in terms of worldliness and both within the church but also the um, prohibitions that are being put upon us outside. I mean, wh when I was referring to, to Berger's analysis uh, of the United States, for instance, um, you know, the point he, he made was that the elite does include the influence on law. He did mention law specifically. Uh, that's certainly the case over there. and in some ways unbelievably is happening over here as well. But the judge is simply making an assertion, um, as these guys tend to do, and they do need to be, uh, to be challenged. But again, you can see what, why, because if you've, if you've got the influence of, say, the European Court uh, of Human Rights and so on, um, both their understanding of law is different to the way we do law, uh, and the basis for law, um, and also I would suggest that the secularization process has gone much further in, uh, in Europe, say particularly uh, say in France and Germany, uh, than over in this country. And that in itself is, is, is obviously impacting quite strongly um, upon um, you know, court rulings and our understanding of human rights in this country. But it seems to me that if you have no real absolute or metaphysical basis for rights, you have nothing. You, you simply end up with assertion um, you know, it's the difference, you know, well, the whole business of positive law. I mean, where does it come from? Uh, now, in terms of our Christian culture, we can see why well, the Judeo-Christian ethic, because there is a God who is a lawmaker. And, um, you know, this, again, it's Lewis's argument, isn't it, in, in mere Christianity. There is such a thing as natural law. Um, it's sort of turned back on itself. It's like a monster that's eating itself now. And eventually, all we're going to end up with is, uh, and you see this in, in, in certain writings, postmodernism and, and so on, um, it's simply just going to be a matter of power. Not simply who can shout the loudest, but who can, yeah, yeah, shout the loudest, sometimes shout other people down. 
Um, uh, th that's it, but, that, but there's no real rational basis for arguing. It's, it's a, so it, yeah, I agree with you, basically, I'm saying, yes, it, it, it has affected our, our legal system significantly in our human rights. Do you think that one of the ways that the church and church membership can avoid succumbing to compartmentalizing their lives is by teaching and training in what I would call conversational evangelism through apologetics. Learning to defend your faith conversationally in the workplace without being dogmatic asking questions but to do that you really need to know about the world views that are Absolutely, out there yeah. and I'm not sure where there is any of that training in the church uh, on uh, apologetics yeah I, I, I agree with you, sir um, a number of years ago um, just speaking you know, as a pastor um, I was coming across quite a number of pastoral problems within the congregation and at first sight, they didn't seem to be particularly related. And, uh, and then, you know, it's like one of these sort of bulbs flashing over your head moments, um, penny drops and all that sort of thing. I realized that there was a common theme. And the common theme was basically that the members of our congregation were coming across difficulties and problems because they really didn't understand the culture in which they found themselves, what sort of things were affecting them and, and causing this sort of confusion and sort of what you call cognitive dissonance that I believe this on a Sunday and yet this has happened to me the rest of the week and I, I can't see how the, you know, they come together. And so that prompted me to do a whole sermon series um, along the lines that um, we are uh, aliens in a strange land. We, we're singing the Lord's song in a strange land uh, and what Peter says that we are exiles and, and, and pilgrims and so on. And we, we're in Babylon. And through that, I, you know, so I was, that was setting the scene, trying to understand our situation and then looking at particular issues. Um, and that was probably one of the best, and most <laughs> pastorally, one of the best things I ever did. Uh, and you can actually buy the book next week. Um, <laughs> it's called Alien Nation, I'll put it together. Um, because it was just, you know, people found it helpful. This is a, a challenge, particularly to those of us who are, are pastor teachers, that when in, in our preaching, um, what we need to do is, um, is actually to engage. Now, I prefer the term engagement rather than application, because when we do application as evangelicals, it's where well, you've got to pray more, you've got to evangelize more, you've got to give more, all right? Uh, no matter what the text is, that's, that's where you're going to go at the end of it. Whereas what we need to do is what John Stott called double listening. So we're listening to the word and we're listening to the world. Now, people have sometimes misunderstood that and saying, well, just putting the two on the same level. No, it wasn't doing that. What he was simply saying is that, okay, the word is God's word and it critiques the world. But in order to critique the world, you've got to understand the world. You've got to know the world in which your people are living. And by bringing the word and the world together in critical engagement, that is when the people not only see the relevance, but feel the relevance of scripture. Non-Christians will see that. I mean, it's nothing new. All the great preachers have done it. Um, 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, okay, let's take a free church example. We've mentioned John Stott, Anglican, let's mention him. Yeah, he did it. I mean, you know, sometimes you listen to a story, I mean, sermons, beginning of the sermons, and sometimes even great admirers like myself, you know, uh, smile a little bit because he started off, this is one of the most important subjects uh, facing us today as Christians. Whatever it was, it was the most important thing. But what he did was brilliant. He'd start off with something that was uh, of concern and then bring a passage, whatever it may be, and you'd get that going on. And whether you call it apologetics or whatever, uh, but that is what we should be doing as preachers. And from the pulpit, and I agree with you in terms of courses and so on, we do need to be able to equip our people um, to understand the world, what the issues are, and then how scripture can actually engage. And not to be fearful, because the fact is that the world has very little. There's no answers. Um, a lot of people are scared. Now, there, there'll be a reaction in some way because people have different plausibility structures and these things are given, you don't question this, you know, gay marriage must be all right, we all agree to this, don't we, that sort of thing, no, no. But basically, th- there's no foundation. And for some people, just to be able to offer a foundation, say, well, look, have a look at this, this, this as an alternative, is a great relief. And I agree, we do need to be equipping our people to do that. Mr. Tickler, that, that, that's been very, uh, been very helpful and very enlightening and, and challenging in some ways, actually. Um, looking at um, very recent examples of where societies, uh, secular societies, have been replaced or overthrown, uh, replaced by um, faith societies. We're, we're thinking places like Iran in, in mm. the early 80s, um, Egypt more recently, and, and perhaps what's happening to Syria just now. Um, whilst secularization is a menace to our society, are there any advantages to a secular government in what is now a multi-faith society? Mm. If you're just putting it as like just an alternative, um, I mean, one of the things the secularization thesis was right about um, was the the concern of a church or or religion being state-orientated rather than society-orientated. In other words, it becomes much more of a political animal than, if you like, a religious animal. And, of course, you're seeing that particularly with, with Islam, and they will not make any distinctions. You know, you haven't got the distinctions that we, we sometimes make. So in one sense, you say, well, okay, if there's a choice between being dominated by that or even, um, in some cases, you may even think a sort of extreme Christian uh, equivalent, and having what's called a secular uh, a government, then I guess most of us would want to go for the latter. But I'm not sure it, it has to be quite like that. It's understanding how government should be working. Um, if one takes a minimalist view of government, which I do, which I think is there in Romans 13, namely to commend the good and to oppose evil and to punish evil, um, then the ideal government is one which Uh, is tolerant in terms of allowing freedom of expression and freedom of views because that can be creative and that has been the the, you know the basis of our our country for for ages but if one understands secularization as um, basically a uh, a sort of strong doctrine you know in a very strong doctrinaire way saying well any view is tolerated except a religious view then that's just as totalitarian as you'd get in Iran. But it's a secular totalitarianism. 
in, in Stalin's Russia, anyone who was thought to be religious was considered to be insane. Well, we hear similar thoughts being expressed today, don't we, in our own country? Um, so I'm not sure it's, it's going to be either way, because it, it's what we're against is totalitarianism, religious or otherwise. Secularists are very energetic. I know they get an easier ride in the media and that their influence is vastly out of all proportion to their numbers because what secularists say often chimes with the belief systems of the elites and media and mm. politics. But do you have any theories as to why secularists are so energetic? Why is it that we think of secularists as being so aggressive? That's a very good question. I'm not sure I know the answer to it, though. <laughs> I'm not sure that they're more energetic than some Christians. Um, a lot of Christians are energetic. But clearly, if you've got... If, it's going back to what I was saying earlier, um, on Guinness's point, that um, if, you, if you've got a, a culture where secularization has taken place, that it's more conducive for secularism to rear its head and gain a greater hearing. Whereas in a situation where the church is strong, then the views of, as happened in the past, like H.G. Wells and, uh, and other secularists of then, um, okay, he was a well-known writer and influential in that way, but, but they were very much a minority because you had a different um, cultural um, st structures with accepted beliefs and norms which were reflective of, of the Christian faith and therefore conducive to it and strengthening it. Whereas what has happened because of secularization with the weakening of the church and the Christian faith, a wilderness that's come in there, um, with the influence of uh, the elite and through media and education, we now have, a, an, a, a, see if you like, a, a sort of uh, intellectual cultural environment which is therefore conducive to the secularists. And so even if they are a minority, um, what they say will chime in more with what most people think. Um, I think that, that's it. Now, there may be other reasons. I don't want to go into the psychological reasons why some people are aggressively secularist. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, given the numbers, I mean, it's minute compared to the number of Christians. But they, it's the acid rain effect. There's a milieu they live in which is supportive of their position, so it's much easier for them to say what they say and to get a greater hearing than for us. In Jonathan Edwards' day, correct me if I'm wrong, people were compelled to go to church, and yet there mm -hmm. were great revivals. And then also uh, in, in places like the Western Isles, where we've seen multiple revivals, can we say that God only works when it's very, very dark? Of course, with Jonathan Edwards, he had real problems with that, didn't he? Because he inherited a situation from his grandfather, Solomon Stoddart. And, um, and one of his complaints was that the church was full of basically unbelievers who thought they were believers. Um, now it's great that you got all these people together and of course you got the revival, George Whitfield comes and preach and you had four uh, great revivals uh, and so on. Um, but other situations where um, you, you've not had that situation where people have come into church but nonetheless God has brought about a revival. It was not a happy situation. And then of course even after four revivals he was eventually booted out after 20 years of ministry because he wouldn't allow uh, non-Christians to take communion. 
Now, he made perhaps mistakes as well, pastorally, we all say and do things we shouldn't do. Um, but yeah, there's wilderness for you in the church, even in Jonathan Edwards' day. Wilderness in the church, I mean, is church growth or the church growth movement a feature of that? Well, that's what I was saying. I think some features of the church growth movement are. Yes. Um, if you start saying things like audience is king rather than the message, then you've sold out. Um, and of course you can grow a church for all sorts of reasons, all sorts of different ways. And so you may get church growth, but it's not gospel growth. And surely what God wants and what we want is gospel growth. Now that doesn't mean to say there are not things to learn from the church growth movement, and of course there is. There are you know, there's some very practical down-to-earth things in terms of how you organize uh, your church. Um, uh, you know, how you, you know, manage things in a, in a proper way so that you can actually get on with gospel ministry. But it, it's this idea that almost uh, we're going to get on and we're going to do it and, oh, by the way, if you want to bless it, God, then that's fine. Or God himself is pushed to the, to the margins and he's waiting there in the wings. But we're center stage and we're getting on with it. Uh, no, God is center stage. He's the one who gets on with it, and it's with the means he's given to us, uh, which is through prayer and proclamation. I am concerned with some aspects of the church growth movement. And as I said, you know, you got the one I mentioned in Houston, 40,000. Very impressive. From an entertainment point of view, an organizational point of view, it blows your socks off. But there's no gospel there. I want to say thank you to Melvin for his very stimulating talk and for the opportunity we've had to ask him questions. We do appreciate it.